You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. We are certainly pleased, as I said, to have Mark here. He uh, is celebrating uh, his 20th year from graduating from the Stanford Business School, so we welcome him back. Uh, He doesn't look like he got out of business school 20 years ago. He still looks like he did then, Uh, but he's done a lot over the last 20 years, as uh, you can see from his bio. Probably, you know, most notably is the IGN Entertainment uh, effort that he was involved in that was a whole bunch of uh, uh, properties, internet properties, one of which I always enjoy, and uh, I tell Marcus, thank you for Rotten Tomatoes. It saved me from bad movies over and over again over the years. Thanks so much. Uh, but as you probably know, IGN was bought by Fox uh, a couple of years ago, if I've got that right, and he ended up being COO of all the interactive properties of Fox, including MySpace, so he got to do that for a year. He's now, though, uh, just, well, let's find out what he's doing in a few minutes, but he's, uh, he, he lives up here, and it's so nice of him to come over to campus or come back to campus and share his wisdom with us. So let's mar- welcome Mark Jung. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, everyone in the audience, for taking the time out of your day to come and join us today. You know, I am uh, truly honored to be on the list of potential guest speakers. You know, I, I spent some time on the website at first just exploring and then listening, and then it got really late in the evening. But the, uh, the collective wealth and wisdom of years of experience of entrepreneurs who have gone before you is really um, just incomparable. Uh, it's such a valuable asset. I, I really do applaud Stanford, Tom, and all the, the efforts that you've made to make this available, not only to the Stanford community at large, uh, but to the general public. And I can, my only hope is that it stays up an archive for eternity. Uh, you know, in preparing for uh, our conversation today, um, I had a homework assignment, which was to put myself in your place in the audience and think about what it is that I would want to hear. And, you know, after much deliberation, I was thinking, should we talk about Web 2.0? Should we talk about IGN and the strategy, Rotten Tomatoes, uh, GameSpy or otherwise? And I thought, you know, probably what might be perhaps the most valuable and most interesting for you as an audience is for me to talk about, as an entrepreneur and as a founder, the journey, the challenges, uh, the decisions that I had to make as a founder and CEO that had the most profound impact, not only on the success of the company, but on my own personal development as an entrepreneur. And to the degree that I can relate that to you, and you can use that as a context or a framework, for the future decisions that you make, I think that might be helpful. Um, And, you know, I would like to uh, lay out just a quick caveat, and that is that, you know, I spent some time on that site, and I realized, well, there's a lot of advice here, right? I mean, there's advice as to what not to do, mistakes that individuals have made in their past, and mistakes that you might want to avoid. It's, It's right there. They're telling you what not to do. But I can only encourage you to make mistakes. It is perhaps the most valuable part of the learning experience. Um, When you make a mistake, it's the only true way for you to understand the context of the impact or the cost of your actions. Without that context, without that framework, um, it's really hard for you to internalize in your decision-making process going forward what the right thing to do is. I mean, it's no different than a six-year-old child who's being told by their mother, don't touch the stove when it's hot. 
I mean, frankly, when I was a six-year-old child, I'm going to touch that stove until I find out the hard way. But finding out the hard way is really important. Until you get burned, it's just something that someone's told you. And I think, again, don't be afraid to make the mistakes. That's where you learn the most. And especially because entrepreneurship is a journey. Most people are serial entrepreneurs, which means you do it over and over and over again, that the first stop is not your last stop. And so in the collective set of experience that you'll develop throughout your career and the mistakes that you make, you'll become a better and better executive, a better and better entrepreneur. Just don't make the same mistake twice. That's what I can recommend. Okay, today's talk about IGN Entertainment and my journey, I think I've really broken down in the context of, um, of the phases that the company went through. And I think IGN is probably typical of what a startup entrepreneurial venture is in terms of its having gone through five phases, and I describe them as follows. Phase one is the startup and the inception. Phase two is a period of growth. Phase three is the unfortunate setback that invariably every uh, venture faces. Uh, I call phase four rejuvenation, rebirth, and the fifth and final phase a transition for either you as an entrepreneur or for the company overall. In our case with IGN, that transition culminated in the sale to News Corp at the end of 2005. So five distinct phases, five sets of challenges that you'll face. And let's talk with the first phase, inception. And on the inception phase as a startup is perhaps the most exciting, the most exhilarating phase. I mean, it's everything is new. You know, there's a lot of energy. There's a lot of passion. There's a lot of excitement. There's an innocence for everyone associated with that phase because nothing has gone wrong. What could have gone wrong, we just started, right? There's an undeniable belief that everything's going to be great. I've got this great idea. You just can't wait to get started. Kind of like freshman year in college. You're in a new environment. You meet a lot of people. You're really excited, and you come rushing in. And there are a lot of decisions that are being made in those early days, right? Your business plan, your strategy, how much money to raise, what, what your product strategy is, who your customer is, what's the name of your company, uh, how do you brand that? Um, what should you do about the press? Where should the company be based? But there is one decision that stands orders of magnitude above everything else. And that is, who is the team that you surround yourself with? Now, commonplace, commonplace wisdom would say, oh, I know the answer to this. Surround yourself with great people. Surround yourself with the A team. You know, it doesn't get any better than that. But is that really enough? Is that even relevant? I mean, I ask each of you in this room to look around you. Just look around you. This is the A team. Unless I have my statistics wrong, this year, unfortunately for incoming freshmen, your chances of getting in are probably 1 in 30 in the main applicant pool, not the early pool. So if that isn't a screen for the A team, I'm not sure what is. Does that mean that you should start a company with the three people who are sitting next to you and be guaranteed that that would be a success? Well, Stanford's done the screen for you. Shouldn't that be a success? Well, let's take an analogy. Let's take the roommate analogy. Well, hey, everyone seems to be normal. Everyone seems to be a hard worker. Everyone is certainly intelligent. Everyone's creative. So let's just put four people together as roommates. It's going to work. No problems. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes it starts with the accusations. Is that my sweater? Hey, did you drink the milk in the fridge? And then it degrades to a total destruction and a lack of eye contact, the avoidance in the room, and then the countdown of days left in the quarter semester till you can get the blank out of there. 
Well, you know, in a rooming situation, you can get out of there. It's not that easy in a founding situation, especially when you've started the company together, you've split the stock. And so the selection process of the team is really critical. And it's not good enough to simply say who's an A player. It really is important for you to think about values, core values that you share as an individual, no different than a relationship versus a roommate. Right? Core values surrounding a lot of things, trust, commitment, goals. What are your goals for the venture? When do you say, I've met my goals, and someone else says, wait, we're not even close? What does commitment mean? What does success mean? How do you define success? Does, do each of you have a common understanding of what the definition of success is? Because you wouldn't want one person saying, hey, we're successful, and the other person saying, we failed. So you need to talk about these things up front in the screen. It's really, really critical. I, I can probably draw the analogy that it's more like a mountaineering expedition than a roommate search. We are talking about co-dependence. Who is on the other end of the rope? Who do you trust to be on the other end of the rope? What happens when the unforeseen occurs, which it's going to? Or even worse, what happens when tragedy befalls? Who can you count on who's still going to be there? Who's going to run for the hills? Who's going to give up? And you know, there is no other time to think about this than the time of inception of startup. As you choose your team, you don't want to be going back and rejiggering and dealing with these issues six months, a year later. One other comment about friends. Someone asked me the other day, well, Mark, what's your opinion about starting a company with personal friends? You know, it's somebody that we know well, somebody that you trust. You might share a sense of commitment or value. So, and hey, it's convenient, and we have an idea together. What does it mean? You know, there is no answer for this in, in business, law or otherwise. But what I can tell you is to prepare yourself with several questions. Are you willing to sacrifice that friendship? You know, will you ask your friend the difficult questions? Will you be as hard on them as you would on a person who's not your friend? Will you cut them more slack than you would a normal employee that, who's not your friend? Will you look the other way too often? The compromises that you may make based upon your personal friendship could create problems for you, and you can't count on that friendship surviving uh, the entity. So that's just something, again, there's no fait accompli, there's no final decision here, but I think it's something you should seriously consider if you start an entity with personal friends. Just FYI for the original founding team of IGN, and actually we began the company, for those of you who remember back in 1999, is Snowball.com. It's made up of people I knew who I had worked with in the past, acquaintances from Stanford Business School, several people who I had only just met, uh, and a couple of personal friends. You know, and in retrospect, some of those friendships did not survive. Is that something I regret? Yes, but it was the cost of starting a venture, and you live with it. Okay, let's talk about the second phase. You started the company, and you go into a phase of growth. And growth is an exciting time. It's a very fulfilling time. It's a very busy time. You are doing a lot of different things. You're too busy to stop or to even answer questions or even to stop and smell the roses and think about what are the most important set of challenges that you have. And I can say one of the biggest challenges that you will face during the phase of growth is learning how to release control as an individual. And what I mean by that is not simply delegating authority but disseminating knowledge. Knowledge is power and knowledge is control. And if you're the only one who knows the answer, and no one else knows the answer, 
Well, maybe that's great, but companies don't scale that way. I know the vision of my company. I'm going to hide this from the rest of my employees. Probably not a good strategy. Probably a recipe for failure. So as your company scales, you hold the keys to everything you need to understand and think about how do I release control? How do I disseminate that information out? How do I extract myself from the decision-making processes so I can allow the organization to thrive and to grow? Because at the end of the day, you can't be everywhere. You can't sell every customer. You can't interview every recruiter, every employee. You can't create every product spec, and you certainly can't draft every press release. The numbers will catch up to you. The faster you grow, sooner or later, you're going to run out of steam. Now, does osmosis work? Meaning, I have a conversation with one employee at the water cooler, and somehow it disseminates the vision of the company? Yeah, it works for about 15 people when the water cooler is three feet from every desk. But it doesn't work as your company scales. So a few metrics for you just from personal experience. At 50 employees, you'll begin to forget the name of every employee. At 100 employees, you won't know who's an employee and who's a spouse at the holiday party. <laughs> at 400 employees, the employees won't know who you are. And that is a scary thought, but that's a statement of fact is corporation scale. And so the only way that you can deal with this is to figure out how you can release control, how you can teach teachers, how can you provide the organization with the tools so that the organization isn't fully dependent upon you. Just to give you a sense for Snowball when we started, you know, our vision was build the world's largest portal for teens. Yahoo, Lycos, About.com, The Globe, even AOL had failed to attract and address that marketplace. And we set out with a furor to say, we're going to build a teen portal. And we're going to do it with a different model because we believe the younger audience contributes content, communicates, collaborates, has individual voice. They want to share. They want to self-promote. This is perhaps way before its time, pre-MySpace. We began to affiliate as a network service model thousands of individual websites of individuals who had individual voices, and the company grew. We started in the beginning of 1999. We ramped from 25 employees to 400 employees in less than one year. And that was hiring one employee a day or more quickly than that. And I could tell you the biggest challenge that you face is bringing those new employees up to skill. I mean, up to speed in terms of their understanding of what the company does or the knowledge of the company to empower them to actually be effective in any kind of situation with any constituency. You know, I remember we went public 13 months after we started the company. And about a week or two weeks before the public offering, I attended a sales meeting, a national sales meeting. And there were so many faces I didn't know. And uh, part of the exercise was for each new individual to introduce themselves to the audience, talk a bit about what they're doing and their background. So I went around, and here's a new employee, Joe. And he stood up, and he said, uh, I started today. I have no idea what this company does. I have no idea what I'm doing here. But I could tell you I joined because my friend told me I should join a company that's going public. And I actually got the job. And that's what he said. Okay, now, we're all just watching him from this room. And uh, afterwards, I'm calling the VP of sales over. And I'm like, could you take that person's name down for me, please? And uh, Needless to say, for whatever reasons, that individual didn't make it, but where does the blame lie? Frankly, it lies on you as the founder, that you failed to be able to communicate a vision and document it such that a new employee can actually understand the context of what it is they're a part of. Okay, phase three, setback. Invariably and unfortunately, every company goes through a setback. It's just a question of the magnitude and the duration. 
And there are no words that I think I can use to describe the pain, the doubt, your self-doubt, the disappointment, the disillusion that you face individually when disaster strikes and you have no idea how long it'll strike and when the light at the end of the tunnel will shine. And for us, disaster struck the day we went public. NASDAQ was over 5,000 and the market began to slide. Little did we know it was the beginning of the dot-com crash. Every day was a tough day. Just to give you a sense of perspective, our market cap dropped from $1 billion on NASDAQ to $1 million on NASDAQ in less than two years. Three orders of magnitude. We probably win the award on NASDAQ of the largest percentage decline in a stock throughout the entire dot-com period, companies who went out of business aside. In the process of cutting costs and trying to survive, we took the company from 400 employees to 50 through a series of four layoffs abetted by transition and attrition with people jumping ship. The only good news is that people stopped jumping ship after about a year because there was no place to go because no one would hire anyone. In the first year, it's almost like the Berlin Wall in the old days. People would get out and leave and people would say, what would happen? He got fired from his next job and people would say, oh my gosh, he didn't make it over the second wall. So people would stop quitting and they would just hunker down because they were so afraid. I mean, it was getting to a point where you'd walk through the company no one would look at you. No one would establish eye contact with you for fear that you were going to be on the list. It's just like being on a Southwest Airlines flight and you're on an aisle seat and the middle seat next to you is empty. People are coming on the plane. You're like, okay, do not look at anyone coming on this plane because if I don't establish eye contact, no one is going to sit down next to me, right? Yeah, does that work? I could tell you, try it. It doesn't work. It might work for the first five people till the sixth person's like, what is this? Excuse me, sir, can I have that seat, right? It's not pretty when you're a founder or CEO and you're walking through and people are avoiding you like the plague. But they're avoiding you for a reason. You've gone through four layoffs. And you can't tell the employees when it's going to stop. You can't tell them when the carnage will end. And it's really ugly when you hear about layoffs because we're talking about ending the employment of people that you have personally recruited to the company. People that you've relocated in many cases. People that you've taken out of other careers where they had promise. Well, you've sold them on a vision of the future. Come join me on this endeavor, on this journey as an evangelist. And now you're telling them it ends today. Not for me, but it ends today for you. There is no easy way to deliver that message and not have it be taken as personal, which is why me and why are there still people being employed here? Is there something about me that put me on this list? And I could tell you it was ugly. I, my experiences there in terms of what I remember, I, in many cases it's a blur. You try to block it out. I do remember three distinct stories that I thought I would share with you. I call them one tragic, one pragmatic, and one comical. So let's take all three approaches to a layoff. What's the tragedy? In one of our layoffs, shortly thereafter, minutes thereafter, a woman came up to me, one of our employees, and she was crying. She was crying so profusely. She couldn't get the words out. But her words were of anger, and she was screaming at the top of the lungs to me. And I was in a cubicle. We didn't have offices, so everyone could hear. And what she said was, I gave my life to this company and to you. You recruited me here. I gave up what I had for this venture, and I have worked day and night. I have been resolute in my commitment. 
and this is what I get in return. This is the payoff for my loyalty, that you shred me and toss me out on the street when my friends are still working over there. And you are the CEO in public, and the people who did not get laid off are there in the cubes, and they're listening to this. And what do you do? You can't hide from the responsibility for your own actions. And your actions are, in many ways, you put the company in that place. Whether it's in your control or not, you can't run from it. That is a tragic moment. We talk about a pragmatic moment. I think in our third layoff, I decided I'm just going to lay off the entire marketing department from vice president all the way down, 20 people in one day. It was too hard to select which of the subset of the individuals should go. Because frankly, you'd have to justify to the people who were left and the people who were going why that selection was made. So I thought, let's make this easy. We'll just end it now. We'll just shut the entire department down, close all the budgets, and everyone will feel at least that they're in the same boat. You know, does that mean that you don't market? You have no customer acquisition? You have no brand? You have no budget? Yes. But we're talking about survival here. That's critical. You don't really have many choices when you're faced with a survival instinct. What's a comic thing for is a comic relief? You know, I have allergies, uh, hay fever. I don't know if any of you do. So in the springtime, especially here in the Stanford or the Bay Area, it gets pretty bad. And I called a meeting, a project management meeting one day with six people, myself and five others, and I brought my box of Kleenex into the room. So I put the box of Kleenex on the table, and I sat down, and sure enough, 4 o'clock, five individuals came in, and they froze. And I'm like, please, have a seat. <laughs> and no one was sitting down. And of course, Mark is sitting there, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm like, please, have a seat. And they're trembling. And I look over at one woman, and she's crying. And she's staring at that Kleenex box. And I'm staring at that Kleenex box. Like, it's just a Kleenex box. And then I'm like, Mark, you are so clueless. And I grabbed the Kleenex box and I said, I have allergies. This is for me. It was a sigh of relief. Everyone sat down. And then, I'm not part of this conversation. They're saying, oh, my God, I thought we were a goner. I knew that was it. I really thought that was it. I can't believe that wasn't it. And you're sitting there realizing, this is what obsesses your employee staff during the day. Can we make it another day without being laid off? I'm not saying these are great days, but I'm saying these are the times that try your soul, and these are the times that test your own sense of self-worth and perseverance. You're not going to get any feedback that's going to be positive from any other constituency around you. Everyone will give up on you. Your investors don't want to own your stock. Your customers won't take a call. Your employees want to quit. Your personal friends feel sorry for you. Now, I had one, on one day... <laughs> The press prematurely announced our obituary. The obituary of Snowball.com. They were convinced through press release, Snowball.com is going out of business on Thursday. But we scooped it, and here we are on Tuesday. And I had to explain to the employees it's not true. But I don't really believe they believed me. I think they thought, he's lying. He's just trying to be polite. This company's doors are closing on Thursday. I had personal friends call me from New York saying, Mark, I am so sorry. I'm like, sorry for what? I'm not dead yet. What, what are you talking about? I'm still alive. Even later, and months later, when we're still alive, I'd bump into people in New York, and they'd say, Mark, what are you doing these days? Like, I'm still running Snowball. And they'd say, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm like, what are you sorry to hear about? <laughs> so let me tell you something. It's not as if you can rely on external influences. It really becomes a test of your own personal faith, your own internal compass. And there are a couple questions I think you have to ask yourself in that process. Why do you still believe? in yourself, and in the company's fate. 
look at yourself in the mirror and you're going to ask yourself, what do I see? And why am I maintaining my sense of attitude and positive approach? You're going to ask yourself, what does failure mean? What, what defines failure to yourself and what can you learn from it? And how are you coping with it in the moment? You ask yourself, how much of this carnage could have been avoided? And how much responsibility or blame should I take for this? Was this in my control, out of my control? Because everyone else seems to blame me. But it's something that you really have to look inside and think about. And perhaps one of the most difficult questions you'll ask yourself is, what do we do now going forward for the employees who are still with us? Am I in denial? Am I prolonging the inevitable for them? And therefore, frankly, I'm doing them a disservice. Or is there a future? Because it can get really dark when it gets dark. And during the dot-com crash, it was as dark as you can possibly imagine. Okay, there, you know, this includes my discussion of this phase. I will say this much in what I call the dark phase of a setback. There are no answers. Right? There are no answers to help you. Mentors, um, supporters could help, shoulders to cry on, but frankly, there are no answers. These are tests for yourself and your own sense of perseverance and loyalty to yourself. It's a very personal situation. But I think you need to be prepared for this phase because I can tell you every company goes through this. It may not be as accentuated and as drastic as what we saw between 1999 and 2000 during the dot-com crash, but you will deal with it as an entrepreneur, no matter what endeavor you choose, whatever, uh, whatever career choice you make, and you need to be prepared for it. Okay, let's talk about phase four, a brighter subject, rejuvenation and rebirth. Now, at some point in time, and frankly, I don't remember exactly when, the storm ended. You know, we somehow managed to throw enough weight and sand out of the plane so the plane didn't crash. And it leveled off. First you're saying, are we level? We're level. And then we began to climb. And what happens when you, what I call, come close to a near-death company experience is you get a renewed sense of enthusiasm and vigor, a bonding experience for the employees that made it through the storm. You come back with a passion. You come back with a sense of self-belief and self-confidence. And you begin to cherish every little thing that you do, every little accomplishment, no matter how small, is something that is applauded and the group takes time to pat each other on the back. Because relative to six months ago, it's a miracle that you've even survived. And to the degree that you're recovering and people don't recognize it, you just blow through that. The public didn't recognize our recovery. So we said, fine, we're going private. So we took the company private. When we took the company private, we came out with this dedicated effort to really grow. And we grew. We became many ways an earnings machine. We had the degree of self-confidence to go out and acquire five companies and integrate them in in a short period of time. And the company grew bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. We were generating cash flow because never again as a CEO would you want to put yourself in a situation where you had to lay off individuals and go through that horror. Now, here's the irony of the biggest challenge of this phase. You look around you as your fellow founders and management team and the success and growth that you've created in this you know, rejuvenation has created a big challenge for you, which is, can this team actually take us to the next phase? Yeah. Do you have the strength, individually, as a founder, to recognize when your own team members are holding you back? And these are team members who have stuck with you, 
that can thin. These are the team members who survived, who stayed on the boat and didn't jump ship. These are the people who you are loyally indebted to for the survival. And now you have to make a difficult decision, which is to say, but you can't lead the effort because we're too big. And the survival skills that you have don't match the process skills that we need to run a large company. Can you find a role for them that everyone is happy with? And if not, can you bear the result of them leaving with disappointment? I can't give you an answer for this either. This is not meant to be a session where I give all the answers, but more so to pose the questions for you that you will have to ask yourself as an entrepreneur as you go out there and start companies. Okay, fifth and final phase. I call it the transition. It's the phase where you, as the founder, eventually transition out of the company. It could be because upon a sale, the acquirer doesn't want you anymore. Uh, it could be because you're retired uh, and you move to a chairmanship. It could be because you get acquired and get promoted. In my case, it was the latter. Um, we sold our company to News Corp in 2005 uh, through a very exciting process. You know, we were going to go back public again. The company was doing really well. It went down to the wire. I got on a plane to New York to sell IGN to another competitor. And with four hours to go, we switched gears and ended up selling to News Corp. And shortly thereafter, they asked me to take on a broader responsibility. As Tom had mentioned, I took over as COO of the interactive assets, which included primarily MySpace, American Idol, Fox Sports, and a few others. And MySpace growth was so phenomenal during the last year. Uh, and it was based in Beverly Hills. Uh, we moved it from Santa Monica to Beverly Hills. Um, that I spent most of my time, almost 75 to 80% of my time, on assisting and managing the growth of that network. So there is a problem with that in this phase. And that is a series of questions which I'm going to pose to you to close here for you to think about. Is the organization prepared for your departure? Have you put in a secession plan? You know you're going to create a void when you leave. And leaving may be that you move on to things at a higher level or corporate or otherwise, but you're going to create a void because so much of the personality of the organization was created by you as an individual, the vision, the leadership. Quite often you undervalue that and you undercount that because it just seems to be obvious, but never does it become more apparent than the day that you leave. And you see it in the eyes of the employees, and you see it in the eyes of the people that you recruited, that I recruited you here, but it's time for me to go. And so are they ready? Are they ready for a world without you as a founder? And you're also tested another way. Where does your loyalty reside in terms of personal relationships with the employees? Because invariably, the employees will call you and say, take me with you to the promised land now that you're moving on. And non-solicit aside, that promised land may be corporate. Promote me up to a different job. And there you're stuck with the dichotomy and the irony of saying, well, what may be best for you as an individual career may not be best for the asset that I started and that I'm draining by pulling the talent out of. And that is a challenge that you're going to have to deal with. There is no win in that scenario, but it's an issue that you're going to have to deal with. Be prepared to deal with it. It's something you should be thinking about very early on. It just is what it is. Okay, let me just summarize and we'll open up for questions. I've tried to highlight what I thought would be during the phases of growth of a traditional startup, um, in the five phases of growth, the key issues and questions that face you that affect your own personal development. You know, I want to remind everyone about a caveat here, which is this is really meant to be food for thought. It wasn't meant to be a guidebook for what the correct answers are. The only person who can know what the right answer is is you, 
as you start your own individual ventures. Each of you will be successful in your own right. You'll go off, you'll make your own mistakes, necessarily so. I encourage you to do that, and you'll be better off for it. And with the collective talent in this room, I'm sure you're going to go off and do amazing things. I can encourage those of you who take the entrepreneurial route to take risks, to dare to be different. Don't follow the standard path. You know, make as many mistakes as possible and learn from it. And think big. Try to make a difference. And when you're successful, however you define it, and this isn't a plug for Stanford Street, don't forget about Stanford. You know, come back and speak. You know, I'm sure ETL will still be in existence then. There'll be an archive. We'd love to have each and every one of you join us for that. So that concludes my formal remarks, and let's open it up for questions. Yes. It's often been said that if you want to start a company, you should look three pockets in town. What areas do you think you're interested The question is, you know, what areas of interest do I think? Uh, what are the areas of interest for starting a company three to five years out from now? And I can comment about the web, and I can comment about mobile. I'm probably not the best person to talk about biotech or services or otherwise. But I can tell you in the web, in the mobile space, it is perhaps one of the most exciting times. Um, each of you is fortunate, uh, for those of you still in school or about to graduate, to be graduating during a period of huge change, um, radical change in the industry, where your traditional skills and traditional assets are becoming obsoleted on a daily basis. Business models are changing because of the power of the user. When the web first came out, well, it be, was a broadcast-oriented medium. That was the thought of traditional media executives. Oh, it won't be a television, it won't be a newspaper, it'll simply be broadcast. We'll create websites, we'll aggregate content on the website, and we'll broadcast to you, the passive user, sitting in front of your PC. But that passive user rose their hand and said, excuse me, I'd like to contribute. In fact, I'd like to build my own website. In fact, I'd like to build my own MySpace or Facebook page. I'd like to create my own blog. In fact, I'm a publisher in my own right, and I can publish better content, perhaps, than what you can publish, and I certainly outnumber you 10 million to one. In fact, you become a service vendor. You're not really a media vendor. We create the content. Without us, you don't exist. And so that shift of content and distribution to the empowerment of the community and the user creates radical structural change from a business model standpoint in terms of where money is going to be made, who really retains control or power within the ecosystem. Uh, there are issues as it relates to IP rights management, there are issues related to revenue share, issues related to content syndication, it's broad. And I think it's kind of wide open, like the wild, wild west. And you're seeing organizations, YouTube isn't a great example, come from nowhere. Um, and I think the reason why you're seeing that is because this space is undergoing massive change, and I think the opportunities are there. We call it the tail. Some people call it the tail. We call it distributed publishing. Um, we call it device proliferation. But in my opinion, no different than Time Magazine, it's the empowerment of you, formerly the reader, now the self-publisher. Yes? The question is, we've talked about the importance of making mistakes. What are some of the most important mistakes that I've made? I have made so many mistakes, uh, it would take us hours for us to, uh, to even sort through them. Um, 
You know, I think the biggest set of mistakes that I've made um, relate to personnel decisions, either in being uh, not being proactive enough, not doing the effective level of screening. You know, when you empower an organization to grow and you put management levels in place, you're delegating a lot of responsibility to those individuals. Some individuals are great doers, but not great managers. And I think if you put the wrong management infrastructure in place, it holds back the talent that exists. You see people quit on you that you wish wouldn't because they hate working for their manager. And that would probably be the last thing that you would want to say to yourself and say, I lost a great employee because they hate their manager. And then when you actually dig a little deeper, you realize this isn't a manager. This person doesn't know how to manage. They don't really care about training or the career of the people who work beneath them. But they're a great individual contributor. And so I think the decisions, most of the mistakes that I've made relate to organizational issues. And there's no other way to get around it than just to make them and learn from them. Yes? I won't ask you what it's like to manage Simon Cowell, but you said that you're all serial entrepreneurs. Um, and you seem to be ne not necessarily going in that direction, although I'm sure there's a great creative content in what you're doing. Do you see yourself getting back into an entrepreneurial setting? So the question, if I summarize it, is, you know, Am I a serial entrepreneur? Do I see myself getting back into an entrepreneurial setting? I have the disease. You know, uh, you call it whatever it is. It's, whether it's in your DNA, learned or otherwise, I am a serial entrepreneur. Um, I love being on that part of the learning curve and having impact and affecting change. Right? The David versus Goliath syndrome, the underdog, it's really something that drives me. And frankly, I think it drives most entrepreneurs. And so how you participate in that ecosystem of being an entrepreneur varies. I think as I get older, I feel I can be just as effective helping multiple companies as a chairman. I, for example, I joined a company back east called ClearSpring Technologies, and I'm the chairman of the board. I'm not the CEO. But I still am part of the entrepreneurial spirit in that growth phase, and I'm helping out on a daily basis, and I'm enjoying myself immensely in doing that. I'm just not the CEO. Yes? Yeah, emphasize the importance of selecting but uh, assume if you have already found your team, but then later on you find out like you don't really match each other, so what should you do? Uh, will you like attract new members or you kick out old members? So the question is, the importance of attracting a team, what if you've already created your team and you find out that things aren't going as well as you originally thought? What do you do? Divorce or mediation or therapy? I mean, what, what, what do you do? Um, there isn't really a good answer to this. Um, I, I would say this much. I think, as with any relationship, the easy way out is to head for the door. Right? That's the easy way out. But you have, depending upon, I mean, if it's been one day and you decide after one day it's not working, there probably isn't a huge cost. If the shares have been issued, business cards have been issued, and it's six months into the endeavor, do you really want to press the restart button? I think you need to analyze what is it in the team dynamics that are not working and to try to figure that out. And if you can't do that collectively as a team, and I'm not being facetious here, go get help. No different than an intermediary, a mediator, a counselor. who can. And there are executive coaches and team coaches that work with the interpersonal dynamics of management teams to help you as a third party think about what the dynamics are and what is dysfunctional. Um, because there has to have been something great about each individual for you to have gotten together in the first place. 
probably wasn't a random occurrence. You hopefully didn't just tap three people who were sitting next to you in the audience. Um, and so there's probably a core there. And the question is, can the rest be managed or mitigated? Um, if you can't do it collectively as a team, lock yourself in a room, face the facts, I would go get help. Yes? Many of us are trying to nail down our summer plans for internships or whatnot. And we may be faced with the opportunity to go out and work in a startup, perhaps of our own, uh, go work on a, an entrepreneurial venture and start a company, or take an internship with somebody else and learn on somebody else's dime and get exposed to some new ideas. What advice do you have for all of us in that situation? So the question is, for a summer internship, is there a better path taking your own initiative and starting your own company in what is a short window of time or joining something that's in existence? I think the answer is yes and yes. I, you know, I don't want to... Um, sound like I'm ducking the question, but I think you learn different things from both processes, and I think there really isn't an answer of what's one, what's better or not. You know, the, striking out on your own, starting your own initiative. I want to remind you that it's, is it likely to be the Google, the YouTube? It could be. Ask Larry and Sergey. It could be, but it may not be. Probably statistically, it won't be. But that's okay, because it's not about the end result. It's about the path. And what you learn in that process, even if it doesn't work, however you define it doesn't work, is so invaluable to you when you start your next company or when you finally end up in the, in the actual initiative that really hits the home run for yourself. And you want to have the skills when that occurs. And the only way to build those skills, unfortunately, is to go through the rite of passage. So whatever you can do to get experience and understanding what it means to rely on yourself, what it means to be different, what it means to keep your head down, to deal with people saying no to you 99 times out of 100, and to be perseverant about it, that's what's really important. Yes? The question is, given that web companies um, have a low cost entry, what is the best way to create a proprietary brand? You know, the web, was, the web was created around a network effect. And the network effect really means that each individual that joins the network benefits the collective, which means the collective is better off for that N plus one person joining the network. So you want to think about a network model. The best way to build brand is viral marketing by your audience, especially if you're a startup with low cost to entry. There may be low cost to start the company, but there hopefully are low costs for customer acquisition. And the way you get that is to develop a service, a utility, that unlocks and empowers the audience to build the brand for you. Because they will. They will. You know, How many dollars did MySpace or Facebook or Photobucket or YouTube really spend on direct marketing building a brand as opposed to the traction of the service creating the brand in of itself? So what you really need to think about is, how do I get the users of my service to promote and market what they have? And I will say one thing to close on that, which is there has to be a vested interest for them to want to do that. You just can't rely on the fact that, hey, they're nice guys or girls, and they're just going to do it because they're altruistic. You have to key into what it is that drives them to want to promote. The more ownership they have of your service, the more ownership that they have of the product or service that they use, the more it links to their own ego, their own desire for self-promotion, the more likely 
they're going to pour their heart and soul into it and promote what it is that you have. So I'll leave it at that. Yes? What would my next company be is a question. That's a secret and that's a surprise. I can tell you, though, as I mentioned before, I am already um, involved with uh, um, a company called ClearSpring Technologies back east. Um, we are in the uh, widget syndication space. The funders are myself and some of the AOL founders. Um, and what we believe is that content floats around the network. Content floats around the web. The concept of a page view or static publishing model is obsolete. Users will generate content and have that content distribute through widgets to mobile devices, to desktops, gadgets, to web pages. And that will be a dynamic floating piece of content that can build distribution for them. And we believe that this trend is going to disintermediate traditional publishing models, traditional advertising models, when you can get that kind of viral traction. And companies that can tap into that, and we focus on the ability to manage that infrastructure, I think, are going to have exciting times. I don't want this to be a commercial for the company I'm chairman of, but I thought I'd answer the question. Yes? Um, if you're interested in getting into an industry which hasn't yet developed something in the future of viral video or after the record companies collapse, what would you do now to prepare yourself to gain experience and skills? What would I, I think the question, if I understand it correctly, is what would I do now to prepare myself for industries that are going to evolve through the death of traditional businesses? Um, well, with all due respect to the broader audience out there, I wouldn't necessarily go work for a traditional business, uh, with the exception of perhaps getting exposure to understanding what they're doing to prepare. Um, I would join a startup that has the most promise to be able to tap into that structural change. And you know, one thing I will mention to you on this in terms of startups is that business plans for startups radically change over time. You go through these different phases. And so they have the core DNA and the skill set to address the industry shift that you expect. You personally can have an impact when you join that startup in terms of directing them to an opportunity that you see coming two years from now. You know, and the most important thing in this structural shift in media or publishing or the web or mobile is that it's the wild, wild west. There aren't any models for success. There certainly, in many cases, aren't any models for monetization or P&L success. Um, and traditional assets, traditional skills, aren't necessarily relevant. So by, any, by all means, the, the field has been leveled from a level playing field. You as a graduate, in many ways, are as well off as anyone who's got 20 years of experience. In fact, I mentioned this in another speech, another podcast that I made, in many ways, perhaps you're better off because you're not encumbered by a history of success that says, oh, this is the way to do it and this is the way not to do it. Since you haven't done either, you're going to be more experimental. You're going to take more risks. You're going to see things that other people can't see because they have blinders on. And that will make you more successful in today's world. What other questions do we have? Yes? Do I foresee another dot-com crash as we had in the year 2000? You know, there is going to be a pullback, I believe. There is going to be a setback. 
but I think the industry is strong enough to recover from this. I don't think you're going to see the irrational exuberance that we saw back then um, and the magnitude of the crash in terms of the pullback from that standpoint. I mean, just look at NASDAQ alone. Many people have said out there, it's 1999 all over again. I can feel it. There's unlimited venture capital, 12 startups a day, five guys and a dog raising money at 50 million pre. It's all going to happen again. But the NASDAQ is not at 5,000. It's not even close. The Dow may be at an all-time high. The NASDAQ is still a fraction of what the irrational exuberance pushed it to, whether it was Webvan or anybody else that drove us to the stratosphere. So I think the valuations are much more reasonable. I think the startup CEOs that I've met, not only are they getting younger, which you would think would be a bad sign, but it's not. In many cases, it's a good sign. But they're smarter. And they're smarter about the product and the value proposition. And the business models are smarter because they're leveraging the viral nature of the audience. And so the cost structures are lower. The gentleman over here who asked a question who said the costs for starting a company are dropping because you don't have the cost of content creation and you don't have the cost of customer acquisition. And so the risk profile of the startup is much lower. So I don't think you're going to see a massive radical pullback. I think you're going to see a valuation pullback, but I think we will survive as an industry. What else can I tell you? My email address. That's something I'd rather not submit till the cameras go off. How's that? But uh, come see me after class. Any other, any other questions? Yes. Um, would you see in the future the technology centers like I guess the question is what do I see as the future of technology centers like the plug and play center? Sunnyvale, um, which is a, a, a building, like a colo facility, for multiple startups that can share a common backbone. I, I, think it's a, I think it's a great model, frankly. You know, the more you can reduce the fixed cost of your business as you start, you know, the longer you'll go, the greater the probability you'll be successful. And when you think about things that you don't need to differentiate yourself on, network backbone uh, in the early days, email infrastructure or systems, um, the FedEx room or the fax, shared resources and shared facilities, that's not what's going to make or break the success of your company. And so to the degree that you can band together in a single location and leverage the fixed cost investment and share that with other companies, I think is a very, very smart model. Otherwise, you're just reinventing the wheel. 12 companies, 12 islands, all creating basic stuff, and those costs don't really make or break your company. So the ability to reduce your cost by sharing that cost with other companies, I think, is a real good model. <coughs> other questions? Yes? You've been kind enough to share a lot about the personal side of doing business, back to some of the other things you were talking about. Um, are you able to have life outside that picks you back up when you're going through those hard times? Or where do you turn um, when so much of your time is just happening? So the question is, um, from a leadership standpoint, in times, in the darkest times, phase three, the setback, where do you turn to for inner strength? What, what do you do from a personal life outside of work? Because work tends to be all-consuming. And when you have problems, work becomes even more consuming. Hard to get away from. It's hard to even walk to your car, go to sleep at night without thinking about, is it going to get worse? And the pain that everyone as a collective is suffering, not just you. 
It's like Maslow's hierarchy. You, you need to survive. And you know, your own self-preservation mechanisms as an entrepreneur and as a founder, what's in your core DNA, is going to force you to look at that mirror and believe in yourself. Because if you give up, everyone gives up. And I, this I guarantee you, when things start going down, if people look over at you, the founder, the CEO, and they're like, oh my gosh, he or she doesn't believe either, it really is over. So you have to find that sense of inner strength. And it's not going to come from analyzing problems at your business or what you could have done different. In fact, it doesn't come necessarily from thinking about work or any of the constituencies that you deal with at work because the press is just going to be negative. It's your fault. Your customers are going to say bad things. So it's got to be something 180 degrees opposite. It could be a passion. It could be a hobby. It could be your best friend who has nothing to do with the Internet, right? who's a doctor um, or who is a school teacher where I don't want to talk about the Internet. I want to talk about life. I want to talk about our friendship. I want to talk about this passion, sports, chess, whatever it is that has nothing to do with your job, where you can gain perspective on what and why you're here as a person. It's not just about the industry and the job, right? Because you will survive the downfall, but it's a question of whether you see that glass half full or half empty. And so what I can encourage you to do in times of trouble is you need that downtime. And that downtime is not sit on the couch by yourself, don't talk to any of your friends, shut off all media, and think about your job. No, that is not downtime. That is torture, self-torture. You need to distract yourself. It could be running, it could be your pet, it could be a passion, it could be your family. Um, but it's something that brings joy to your life, something that rejuvenates your sense of self-esteem and confidence and your belief in the positive side of things as opposed to the negative. Mark, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome.